Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we have a guest, Jeff Zachariah, president of Zaki's. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Excited to be here. I was wondering if you give us a brief background on Zaki's and specifically the wine auction business. So Zaki's was started by my grandfather in 1944. So a long time ago, my father took it over in 61, and I've been working with him ever since. I joined in 83, and my brother-in-law joined in 93. So I've been in the business nearly 40 years. We started in the wine auction business 25 years ago in 1995 when the laws changed in New York, or they changed New York in 94, to allow wine auctions. Before that, they weren't legal. So we joined in 95. We originally were partnered with Christie's. But, you know, we're a very different organization than Christie's, and we operate very differently, and the partnership just didn't last. And we kept saying, hey, if it's not going to work, we're going to go out on our own. And they kept saying, oh, we don't really worry about that. It only took us a few years to really, in terms of wine auction sales, sell more than them. Certainly, you know, in art, because wine, I think, to Christie's might be a rounding error compared to the art that they sell and things like that. So we went on our own in 2002. We started doing first in New York. Then we expanded, I guess, in 2005 or so to do them in LA, wine auctions. When the laws changed in 2008 in Hong Kong that lowered the tax to zero, we very quickly hopped on that, headed over to Hong Kong. We've been selling wines into Hong Kong since the beginning of auctions, even before that in retail. But we very quickly moved to Hong Kong and established a presence there in 2008. And pretty quickly, it's a really interesting trend because London was the wine auction capital of the world, right? Long before New York came around, when the New York sales started in 95, within a few years, we overtook London as the wine auction capital of the world. When Hong Kong came into place within like three years or so, by 2011, Hong Kong was the wine auction capital of the world, meaning that there's more wines sold at auction in Hong Kong than anywhere else. Now it's New York and Hong Kong battle it out a little bit, depending on what's going on. But it's really been a fascinating trend. So we moved to Hong Kong in 2008. And then just last year, as I think you know, we opened up in, no, this year, I'm sorry. This year we opened up in London. So we've opened up in in Europe as well. And do you think you could just give us a brief overview of the wine auction process at Zaki's and how it may differ from other auctions like Christie's, as you just mentioned? Yeah. So the differences that I was talking about aren't so much in the processes, I don't think, although there are some differences. So I'll talk about Zaki's and what I understand to be the differences in processes. So, you know, a lot of it is pretty similar with any auction house. Someone who's interested in selling wines usually sends us a list. We then turn around, we give it auction estimates, which is a low and high estimate, and we expect the wines to sell somewhere in the range of those estimates. If the consigner likes those estimates, they say, yeah, let's move ahead. We send them a contract. We organize to get the wines into our warehouse because all the wines need to be in our possession to sell them. We then catalog the wines, which is a pretty detailed process where we look at each bottle and note if it has a nick label, a torn label, the fill is really important, the fill level of the wine, because as wines age, the eulage increases. And that's very important to customers. The serious buyers want to know that the higher the fill, the more confident that they are the wine is still young and fresh and a good example of that specific wine. So we catalog wines in great detail to give our buyers great confidence in what they're buying. We produce the catalog, either an electronic catalog or more important sales, we still do printed catalogs, have the auction, which is either one of three ways that we hold auctions these days. The traditional way is a live auction, 
which we're not holding right now because of COVID, but those will come back one day. Most of the live auctions, we've switched to studio sales. And studio sales are me as a live auctioneer sitting in front of a camera, and we might have bidding parties out there. We might have people bidding. We have people phone bidding. We have bidding parties. We have absentee bids that come in beforehand. And we have people just watching us on the internet participating in the sale. So we've moved most of our live sales to studio sales. And then we've always had for many years internet sales or timed sales, which are open often for 10 days. And there's no auctioneer, there's no final bidding going on, although there is this big ramp up at the end as people are bidding with great frenzy at the end to try to win the lots that they actually are interested in. So that answers the first part of your question. And then the second part, you wanted to know what are the difference between the auction houses. And I guess what I take great pride in our team is the effort that we put in to researching and inspecting the wines so that our buyers know they can bid with confidence at Zaki's. When you're buying wines direct from a chateau, you can be very confident of the quality of the wines because it has touched very few people's hands. Every time there's another link in the chain, there's more risk involved. And we acknowledge that, and that's just part of the auction world. There's great excitement on the other side, but there's risk that somewhere along the way, the wines weren't stored properly or not ideally. And it's our responsibility to do as much due diligence as we can to be confident with the storage of those wines. And that's where I think we really separate ourselves out is the great effort we put into checking that out and into cataloging the wine so that people have great, great detail beforehand on what they're getting. We don't want surprises when our buyers are buying wines. We want them to get what they're expecting to get. It's definitely an interesting area. I noticed you guys do quite a bit of direct from a domain or direct from a state. One of my first times buying from Zaki's was actually, you guys had domains in Humbrecht Wines direct a couple of years back. And I was just like crazy old vintages in large format. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm never going to chance to get these with that provenance again. Yeah. And there are domain direct sales that are a really interesting way to get some of these really cool and old wines that you don't often see at retail. You just see it much less often. One of the really unique things about a wine auction is it's public. It's available to anyone. When retailers get wines, really cherries, they go normally just to their customers who've been supporting them year in and year out. It's a very normal thing. But an auction is very open. You know, it's open to anybody. We're not restricted that way. That's not how we operate. So it really, it makes it a more level playing field in a certain way, you know, for these high-end wines. So overall, for the wine auction market, Wine Spectator had 2019 as a record year for wine and spirits auction market at $521 million, which is up from the previous year. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the 2020 market, especially given that we have lockdown and things like that. Yeah, 2019, I'm going to back up a little bit. We've seen pretty good growth year over year for us at auctions, pretty steady growth. And we had this significant spike in 2019. And so we didn't expect to surpass 2019 numbers in 2020. That was never in our projections or our budget. 2020, we expected to be stronger than 16, 17, and 18, but 19 had such an incredible surge, which is a little bit of a positive, perfect storm, if you can say that. Just, you know, everything, the sun and the moon and the stars all aligning to bring some extraordinary collections to the market in 19. But 2020, we're actually beating our projections, even with COVID, even with all the disruptions that we've had. We're noticeably, we're 12%, I think, above projections for the year. And the year's finishing up with some exciting sales coming up. We couldn't be happier with how this year's turned out with all the challenges that we faced. And so Zaki's is the number one wine auction company globally. What factors have really led to that leadership position? 
There's a number of factors, right? Because it's not the first time someone's asked me that. I would say the biggest factor is that wine is all we do. Wine is our passion. It's our love. We live it and breathe it every day, every night. While a lot of the other companies, a lot of the other auction houses, specifically Sotheby's and Christie's, are just a tiny, small part of what they do. And me as the chairman of the company, as the head of the company, that's all I do all day long. So I get to know a lot of these important consigners. It's my passion. It's what I love. So it enables us to keep a laser focus on that. But it's not just me. I don't want to by any means say that the strength of Zaki's is me because we have an incredible team that's as passionate about wine as I am and just really appreciates fine wine and the marriage of fine wine and food and just the whole aura and love around those things is what we do. We live it. We really enjoy going out for, you know, and marrying great wines and great foods and just so love that world. That helps drive part of it. Being in the business for 40 years, knowing the producers for that long. When last year, actually two years ago, when there was a whole ownership change at Lafitte, I've known Jean-Guillaume Prats, the new president of Lafitte, since probably 1985. I don't even know when I first met him, but we've been friends ever since. And so when I first congratulated him for this unbelievable job, you know, it doesn't get any better than the president of Lafitte. And then I said, this is a great opportunity for you and Saskia Rothschild, who's taking over from the family side, to really show yourself to an important part of the wine world. And what's interesting about auctions is we really hit buyers who don't see any other parts of the wine world. Some of them don't buy at retail. They don't buy from our retail or others. They only buy at auction. And these are really serious collectors. So for a chateau like Lafitte, which really wants to make sure they're hitting important collectors in all the spectrums of the wine world, this is certainly one of the important ones. So when I presented it to Jean-Guillaume, he thought it was a great idea and then, you know, it came together. But that's only because I've invested 40 years into this business that he had the trust in Zaki's to say, yeah, Jeff, I trust you on this. And I couldn't have gotten a better compliment than I got after that sale was done. We were opening up some champagne to celebrate that night. And Jean-Guillaume said to me, and I'll never forget this, congratulations, Jeff. You came to me a year and a half ago and presented me with something. And it was pretty big. And you achieved everything that you committed to achieve with me. So that was a big compliment. Other reasons for this is, as I mentioned, the team, it's not just me. Our head of Europe is constantly traveling to the vineyards. She's constantly meeting the producers in Italy and France and Germany because she's as passionate about wine as I am, Christy Erickson. And she's just working that market and helping to build the Zaki's brand. Same thing in Asia. Our head of Asia, Terence Tang, is doing the same thing, not so much visiting the vineyards, but working with all the collectors in Asia and helping to build our brand. It takes years of investment. It's not something a startup can do overnight because so many of these collectors are just passionate collectors who love what they're doing. It just takes years to build up those relationships with them. Along those lines, you just mentioned that you recently launched in London. How do you see that market as being different from other markets? Well, we're just finding that out. I think that it's not just London. You know, from London, our goal is to service all of Europe and, of course, the world, because in our U.S. sales, we have people from Europe buying in them and people from Asia buying in our U.S. sales. And same thing with our Asian sales, although a little less. But certainly in our European sales, we'll expect support. We've already seen it, support from the U.S. and Asia. But the biggest amount of support will come from Europe. And I feel that it's an underserved market from an auction perspective, that while they certainly can get plenty of wine, 
in Europe. The auction market hasn't focused so much on it. And when the wines are already there, you're going to get people who will participate in those sales more quickly than if they have to wait two months to get their wines, right? When they're just buying two cases or three cases, they don't want to wait for the consolidated shipments that we organize and stuff to get their wines. Not everyone will have that patience or that long-term time frame unless it's something they really, really want. So having the wines in Europe will just enable us to deliver out to them much more quickly. And I think there's going to be a lot of potential growth. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to a live auction in person. And I was really impressed by how much of an event it was in terms of wines that you're tasting during the process. But then also I've got familiar with Zaki's by buying on the online auctions, which a lot of times are smaller offerings, not in terms of smaller, in terms of quantity of bottles, but in terms of they're not full cases and things like that. And so that's kind of where the area where I've been playing on. But with the current changes, I'm curious on how you see the wine auction space evolving, especially as more things have moved online. How do you see virtual from in-person auctions differing? We love in-person auctions because, again, so much of what we do is connecting with the wine world. And like anything, like a Zoom meeting, right? With, with employees, you don't connect as well as you do in person. So as soon as it's safe, we will do that. But in the meantime, as we flipped to studio sales, we have started setting up bidding parties. So where it's safe, where it's allowed and it's safe to have a bidding party, we will organize. We've organized in Sweden. We had 15 bidders in a room bidding on wines and we had one of our European representatives there. We've had bidding parties in London. We've had bidding parties in Germany. We've had bidding parties in China. Right now, you know, as I'm sure people have followed, the pandemic has way receded in China and it's pretty opened up. So we can have bidding parties there as well. And as Hong Kong has kept it under control, we've done that also. And we do this and we have a Zoom. So I see the people in the room and I can acknowledge them. And a lot of them are my friends because I've traveled around the world and met them over time. And so it's, I can still connect with them to an extent. We've had people dancing when they won lots. And so I'll go be dancing with them, right? It's just fun and we interact with them. When I see people bidding live online, if I know the buyer, I'll acknowledge them in an anonymous way so that they know I'm talking to them, but doesn't reveal who they are to the rest of the world in case they choose to want to stay anonymous. We're trying to stay connected with our buyers as much as possible. That's part of our business. That's part of our nature. So for people who don't know what a bidding party is, what gets involved in that? So you have 10 buyers in a room. Are they socially distanced? Is there still the same kind of like food wine atmosphere as a live auction? The exact same food, wine, atmosphere, and they are as distant as they need to be to be safe in that country, right? We're following the regulations of that country at that point. There's always a couple Zaki's representatives there. And so, you know, Robert, as you said, you've seen how the live auctions used to work. I don't know which auction you went to. When we were partnered as the Christie's, if you sit at a typical Christie's auction back in the day, you sit auditorium style, and maybe you get some cheese and crackers if you're lucky, and we wanted to make it more fun. So we said, let's do it in a restaurant. And we were the first people to change, you know, this is one of our early innovations, to change from doing an auditorium style to restaurant style, right? So people are sitting around table drinking wine. We hold them at La Bernadette. We used to hold them at Restaurant Danielle. We hold them at great restaurants all over the world. At Smith & Walensky is a fun restaurant that people love to go to. It makes for a much more fun atmosphere. So that's what we used to do. And we try as best as we can to recreate that with the bidding parties. And we've seen like when Dusseldorf is bidding against Stockholm, and I'll go, Dusseldorf, are you going to let Stockholm win this lot? 
right? And so they start bidding against each other. And there's those kinds of fun challenges that can happen. Or waving flags. <laughs> Doing the La Palais, the Burgundy song. We've done that at times. You want to make it a festive, fun environment as best as you can. I went to the, at La Bernardin, the La Palais auction, not this year, the year before. Oh, I was really impressed. They actually had bottles that was like for immediate opening at the lunch. And I didn't realize what an event it was. So I sat down at a table and the next thing you know, people are pouring me wine. The lunch is coming. The guests come up and other buyers and they bring bottles as well. And I was just like, oh, when I back the second day, I was like, okay, I have to bring bottles with me. It was like, I needed someone to like ramp me up. I kind of just went blind the first time, but it was such a great experience. I didn't realize how much fun a live auction could be. And I just met some nice people that I had met through the rest of the week's events that, you know, I interacted with. It was great. That's beautiful. That's music to my ears because that's exactly what we're trying to set up. We're trying to set up a really fun environment where people can enjoy themselves because that's what wine's about. That's what we feel wine's about. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about investments and all that. That's part of it. And we certainly respect that and pay attention to that. But to us, wine is for consumption. Wine is for enjoying with friends. But are there key takeaways from all the online stuff that you've been doing that you're going to carry forward, you think, into the coming year? A lot of the wine industry in different parts, for people we've talked to, they've been forced to evolve. And a lot of people are going to keep what's been working. I'm just curious on how that merges with wine auction space. For a while, we've been talking about doing studio sales. It was on our list of things to do. Hadn't done them yet, but felt it was a logical next extension. And COVID forced our hand quicker than we might have otherwise. But, you know, it's fine. And what we're looking to do, we're really investigating how to make it more interactive. That's what we're doing right now to make it more fun. So maybe we have five bidding parties going. People can set up their own bidding parties with their friends. So only they know what's going on with them. Just, you know, we want to make it interactive and fun and continue to allow it to evolve just to keep the DNA of what we believe wine should be about. And have all those changes changed the business model of wine auctions? I think there's been a trend that buyers' premiums have been increasing. Has it changed in terms of sellers' commissions or all that sort of thing with it being more online or just evolving? You know, there were some increases in buyer's commission, not recently, but no, certainly since COVID, nothing's changed along those lines. We're investing our money differently and doing things differently than we were, but the basic structure has stayed the same. If you're asking Peter just from the last year or so, right? Nothing's really changed there. And then just in general, is there a seller's commission and a buyer's premium or is it just one or the other? Every auction house does it differently. And I think they all end up close to the same between the two. We have focused more on a buyer's premium. You know, there can be a small seller's consignment commission, depending on the consignment. That's a negotiable fact for us, negotiable part of the deal. You know, the more wines you give us to sell, the better your deal is going to be as a consigner. And we will even sometimes give back part of the buyer's premium to the consigners in terms of a rebate, you know, when people give us a big enough consignment. I've heard from other places that finding the lots to sell is the biggest challenge in the wine auction space, not the actual act of selling the wine per se. Yeah. Like last year, right? We had this phenomenal year and we managed to sell it all, right? We sold, I don't know, what was it? We sold 50%, 40% more wine. We had to offer and we had no problem selling it all. There seems to still be a lot of potential buyers out there. It's more getting the consigners. That's the more challenging side of the business, which is why that's more competitive. So in terms of wine sales, you know, Bordeaux and now Burgundy are classics in the auction market, but what else is kind of trending or surprised you that has kind of been really auctionable? So yeah, granted, you're saying, yeah, just Burgundy and Bordeaux, and those are the obvious ones. But Burgundy still surprises me because those prices are continuing to go up and up and up, and there seems to be no end. Overall, what's happened in Burgundy, which I've seen, which is exciting, 
is there used to be seed producers that got prices came up so much that they sold out. And there's new people coming in who are now making B and A wines so that you are able to increase supply of top quality Burgundy with new investments. So you do have an increase in supply, but it doesn't matter because demand is far still outstripping supply out of Burgundy. So while this is not a new trend, this is still an ongoing trend that I expect I don't see in any short-term horizon that changing at this point. Other areas that have certainly have interest is champagne. I would say is an area we're excited about and there seems to be interest, older champagnes. And besides for that, it's just some of those areas. There's certainly interest in Italian wines, but not as strong in Rhone wines, but not as strong, you know, in California. I keep waiting for California to come back. There's some great Californian wines, but it just hasn't, you know, except for a few labels, it hasn't really continued to drive forward. Why do you think that is? It's a good question. And obviously, if I had my crystal ball, but I left it at home today, I might be able to answer that. It's just where the world is focused. It's where the trends are. It's where the world is going. If people are going to Burgundy-styled wines, often Californians are very different. They make a different style of wine. So those people are really chasing those Burgundy wines, won't chase the Californian wines. Although there are some great ones, it's a very different style and just hasn't hit the same stride. Just like stocks, just like, or not so much stocks, that might be not be a good comparison, but watches or other things like that or jewelry, you just get trends based on people's tastes. And the trends right now are much more towards those old world wines. Curious, a slight tangent, because you have retail and the wine auctions. And I'm curious if sometimes knowing what happens in auction actually helps derive what you should be charging something at retail or if there's some kind of relationship there. Because I could see that when burgundies get imported, that when they sell at retail, there's kind of like a transactional price with the importer to the retailer and you just kind of apply like a standard markup. But when things go into auction, they kind of get their real true value realized based on what people are willing to pay for it. I'm curious on how that informs some of your pricing decisions on the retail side. Yeah, most on the retail side, we sell our younger wines. And so they don't often hit the auction market until later. So there is overlap, but it's not a significant amount of overlap. And the overlap is more in the older wines where the market's kind of settled out. We see certainly in Bordeaux, when they re-release wines in Bordeaux, they always start at the highest price, right? They want to be above the market because they feel that because the wines have been stored as ideally as possible, they're worth more when they've stayed at the Chateau for longer. So you'll get those price disparities, price differences along those lines with that. The market seems to settle itself out often. You can often get some pretty good deals at auction, especially when you pay attention. It takes a little more work, but you can get some great values at auctions if you do that, while retail, as you said, has a fixed price. So you talked about the premium of provenance coming direct from winery. How much of a premium have you seen that give? And there's some now certifications of wine authenticity, sometimes from the producer, sometimes from third parties like Penfolds, Recorking will do some certification. Is there a big premium associated with those? Absolutely. And you see it every time you have a domain direct where things can sell anywhere from 20 to 200%. And that 200%, I'm just picking, I don't know the exact, but significantly more than the estimates and the premium. I mean, 1945 Lafitte at our auction that came domain direct, right? Because we did a Lafitte only sales I discussed earlier. The estimate was 2400 to 3800 and it sold for $74,000. These rare wines coming right out of the Chateau, that's what'll happen, right? A six liter of 59 Lafitte 
The estimate was 46 to 70,000 and it sold for 160,000. These are hefty numbers and our estimates, we said we know these are going to go stronger than a standard market. We estimated them higher than a standard market, but this is the X factor that you can't predict when you're getting such rarities directly from a winery or a chateau. So I'm curious on your online timed auctions versus your in-person or now studio auctions, if you find that the different wines would be suited for each of those types of auctions differently, or like how would you differentiate which, which wines you put into each of those types of auctions? Yeah, it's a great question. And we constantly discuss that and try to nuance, you know, try to really parse that out as intelligently as possible. So our Z collection auctions, which I love, by the way, and it's going to be a big part of the future of the wine auction world, started out with really the same quality as wines, but usually smaller lots. While you might sell a case in a live sale, you might sell just two bottles in a Z collection. We're now actually lowering, we've lowered our threshold for Z collections for things we might not even put into a live sale. And what we've done is raised the bar for live sales to keep it for super high-end wines and super high-end collections because there's so much wine coming through that you want to keep the live auctions exciting and fresh. You know, if you have just too much regular wine in them, people aren't going to come out for those types of sales. So what we've seen is that younger people and people who are just coming into wines or high-end wines are super excited about the Z collections because it's a much easier gateway into learning and exploring and committing to buying a case of wine when you don't know that much about it. So while we still have some expensive wines in the Z collections, because it sort of depends on the consignment and what's going on, its average lot value is noticeably lower than a live sale or a studio sale. And it's interesting that you're talking about Lafitte and different producers getting involved in the auction space. From that producer perspective, how do they think about building their brands or how do they think about being successful in the auction market? Is it just critic scores or is it other things? With Sintum Bresch, as uh, Robert, you talked about earlier, which is an earlier one for us, and many, many of these producer direct, it's part of us to introduce their wines or reintroduce them to our buyer base, which, as I said earlier, really can be separate. Some buy everywhere, but others really only buy at auction. Or they don't think about it. Maybe someone used to buy Zintem Bresch, but doesn't buy it anymore. They haven't thought about it. So part of what we're doing is sharing these wines with them for them to taste. So what we did for the Zintem Bresch sale, because that was an online only, but we had a Smith & Walensky sale a week before, and we tasted a bunch of those wines there. We made sure people knew, so a lot of people came in and tasted them. As we were doing dinners, because we will do pre-promotional dinners for the live sales, we brought some of the ZH bottles to those as well, as it gave our buyers an opportunity to retaste those wines. The producers look at us as another way to help brand their products. A little less traditional than the retail market, but for high-end wines, still an important part if they're looking at the global picture of trying to reach out to all their potential buyers. I remember reading about Schrader holding back some of their wines after they started getting 100 points all the times and selling direct through the auction market. What do you think of that sort of strategy? Yeah, their strategy, again, is as opposed to just selling it to retailers who will just sell it to their top clients. I want to bring new clients in. I want to bring in people who maybe, whatever the reason, don't have the right relationship with the right retailer. And I want to make sure that they're having an opportunity to sell my wine, to buy my wines. You know, it's another channel. It's another way to reach out there to do it, to gain notoriety. Because our catalogs go all over the world. And if I put Schrader on the cover, that's meaningful. That's meaningful to someone in Asia who maybe hasn't bought 
trader before says, and they might say, huh, I'm curious what's that about. And they might call our Asian office and we say, yeah, we've got some bottles here. Come to the dinner that we're organizing a couple days before the sale and try some. Wine producers who are willing to think a little more outside the box see this as a very successful alternate way to reach out to clients. And have you seen scores have a direct correlation to premiums that they're going to realize for the wines? Or is that something that has gone away or something that's less of a focus these days? That's a good question. It used to be a bigger driver than it is today. Scores are still important, but you know, when it used to just be wine spectator and wine advocate, it seemed to be a stronger driver. But as we've gotten many more people rating wine, you know, which I'm happy about in many ways, because now it's forcing people to trust their own palates and their friends' palates as well. You should look at scores. That's an important part of it. But it's as more raters have come out, it's sort of diluted the power of the score to an extent. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it's great. You know, Peter and I often debate auctionable wine versus investable wine. And we have this discussion back and forth numerous times. And a lot of times, I think our takeaway is that the auction set that kind of benchmark for what those wines could be worth at that moment. And it's a trend over time. Do you see investable wine to continue to increase in value at the same rate it has in the past? In 1983 was my first year working in retail and we're selling 1982 Bordeaux, right? And I had customers, I didn't know much what I was doing, but I had customers yelling at me, how dare we sell first gross for $400 a case? And it was outrageous because the year before they had bought them for $300 a case. And they thought the wine world is going to be ruined in a couple of years because of how expensive wine was getting. These are the same guys a couple of years later are coming back and thanking me for selling them the wines I sold them, right? You know, look, over the 40 years I've been in the wine business, I've seen prices generally go nowhere but up. And for a number of reasons. First of all, it's the quality of the wines. As the technology has gotten better, while the best wines have increased in quality, it's really the more challenging vintages that have come up more. They're still not going to make as great a wine as a great vintage, but you don't have the really poor vintages anymore. You rarely have them, I should say. They're much fewer. And that's given people more confidence overall, right? And trust in the wines that they're buying. And the other side, there's just many more wine collectors than there used to be. That continues to expand worldwide as wealth has continued to be created worldwide. And just look at China is the best example, but it's not just China. We're beginning to look at Africa where there's real wealth beginning to be created, at least pre-COVID we were, because we just think it's interesting and that could be the next frontier for the wine world. As wealth is created, wine is actually an inexpensive luxury. It's less expensive than watches and cars and many other things. And so as wealth is being created, it's something that a lot of people start looking at. So I do think wine prices will continue to go up because demand continues to outstrip the ability to produce more. Certainly in the hot regions like Burgundy, less so in Bordeaux, but in Champagne, there's just a limited amount of wine that can be made and just much stronger. So you were just talking about wines are growing in price over time. And if we look back, 20 years ago, Burgundy was not as major of a factor as it was as it is today. And I'm curious, as Burgundy's prices have risen, have you seen that sort of have an impact on the prices of top-end Bordeaux? Absolutely. Burgundy prices have risen up, and I guess on a podcast you won't see this, but pretty aggressive upward trend. And Bordeaux prices have been going up, especially for the top vintages, but not nearly as aggressively. It's a number of reasons, but part of it is for sure the renewed and just much, much greater interest in Burgundy worldwide. And a big part of that is China and Asia. They used to be totally Bordeaux-focused, and they're just not as much. They're still drinking a lot of Bordeaux, but not nearly like they were. I said this earlier, I think, in the podcast. I don't see 
burgundy prices really slowing down for the next five years at a minimum. After that, who knows? What will happen in Bordeaux? I think they're undervalued. I think in the auction market, there's a lot of great, great drinking Bordeaux that compared to what we're seeing prices in Burgundy, they're undervalued. So I do think in a couple of years, you will see Bordeaux prices coming back up more strongly than we have recently. So if you were a Bordeaux drinker, would you be recommending people to forego buying current vintage on Premier and going to the auction market and buying? I mean, essentially, you're going to get one that's already been aged, assuming you have good provenance. Right. You know, I wear two hats here. I wear a retail hat and an auction hat. But the reality is, over the past few years, the reasons for buying on Premier are fewer and fewer because the prices have been released so high that you don't often make your money back. You still can in some vintages. It has happened, but not like it used to happen in the past. And there's a lot of people now who choose to do exactly that, not buy them on Premier, but wait and buy them a few years out at auction or somewhere else. And in many years, that is the right decision. Not always, but in many years, that's the right decision. It's not the right decision for very hard to find wines. If you want specific sizes, if you really want magnums or big bottles or half bottles, because you have the ability in Bordeaux, if you buy on Premier, to choose what size you want. And you can't obviously do that later on. You know, we're talking a lot about Bordeaux and Burgundy, which is the core of the auction market. How do other regions get involved? If I'm thinking like, even in Argentina or South Africa, Australia, right? Are they just not present at all in the market? Or how do we think about that? Yeah, so a lot of those countries, they're not present because they don't have a resale value. People are not, I mean, there might be one or two, right? And in Australia, there are some, but it's just a handful. There's very few South American wines that we see at auction at all. It just isn't a demand for them yet at this point at auction. And it's a chicken and the egg thing. When will that come? I don't know. It could very well come at some point, but their quality has to keep going up and they have to be wines that really can that are really age-worthy and will continue to improve in time. It takes a long time to make a really high-quality wine. That's not what we're discussing today. But while China can produce many things you know, and learn how to do, I'm making this up, solar panels much quicker, making a great wine, you can't just copy. It takes so many years to understand the subtleties that it's just going to take all these countries long, long investment before they hit the auction world. In your mind, making a great wine is the first criteria, it sounds like. What are the other factors that make a wine auctionable then in your mind? Well, it's fashionable, right? Like anything, what people are searching for. It's, you know, it's like any other commodity at that point. And it's where the wine world is. So besides for the quality of the wine and the rarity, but the rarity is forced on these people because there's more buyers and sellers. I mean, this is economics 101. And that's what creates an auction market then, when you have that ability to do that, at least in our part of the auction market, right? If ever there was auctions and there aren't really for inexpensive bulk wines for retailers to buy or something, that's just not how the market works for those types of things. It's really a rarity factor. And that's created by the quality of the wines and the wines that people are looking for. And you mentioned earlier about new customers or buyers coming from all over the world. What does the normal wine buyer at auction look like? Well, typical one in the past was a white male, you know, 50 or older, right? No surprise here. And I'm really glad to see that all changing. I'm glad to see women coming into it much more, although it's still a male-dominated world. Not in my company, but in collectors. You know, there's a lot of women passionate about wine and in my company as well. We're beginning to see it happen with collectors. We're beginning to see minorities get more involved in it. We're trying to see how we can expand it with them as well. We don't have all the solutions, but to us, those are other 
markets. That's another venue for us to be looking at to try to increase the love and passion for wine, share with other people. That's what we want to do along those lines. Did I answer that question, Peter? Yeah. And is the age of the buyer changing or what's the gateway, right? Because wine auctions tend to be a little bit more exclusive, higher end things. What's the gateway to build people to get to the wine auction space? Yeah. So there's a couple of gateways we've used. The best one is just our Z collection sales because that's smaller quantities, as we said, so it's more affordable and can enter people into it. Before COVID, we were starting to do in hipper areas in Brooklyn, we were having bidding parties along those lines types of things where, again, because a lot of people view auctions as like this barrier, this fear of the unknown or fear of making a mistake or something like that. And for us, it should be fun. Robert, when you came to the La Polay auction, Edler Brenner Dan, it was just fun. And when we get people in the room, they can have a lot of fun. It's just a question of doing it. I will admit I was a little intimidated because I'd never been to one in person before. I've done them online and like I'm doing it from the comfort of my own home. There's a lot of data coming at you as well. And so with the online, I feel comfortable. I have multiple screens open and I can look through it. And then with an auction, I got to pay attention. And if I'm chatting with someone, I may lose place about what are we talking about? Like, wait, am I bidding on the right one? And obviously there's screens everywhere, but it is a little intimidating. And it's like trying to figure out how to break down those barriers are really interesting. It was a great experience, but that first like hour or two, I didn't know really what to do. It was like, you always need like a ramp up guy to like get you comfortable there. Yeah. And for sure, when you first show up at an auction, you just should take it slow and not buy too much and just get a lay of the land because it's very different. Just you really have to learn what's going on and learn how to manage all those pieces. When I'm talking to clients, one of the things I always try to say at an auction, hey, I don't want to interrupt anything. Are you bidding for something? Because I, of all people, shouldn't be stopping a bid from going on because I'm having a good conversation with someone. But it happens. That's the downside of what we do. But the upside so much stronger. You know, the ability to just to forge those relationships is so valuable. It's worth it. In terms of, you know, we've all heard about counterfeit wine. Auctions are kind of on the frontier of that subject. And I'm curious on what Zaki's does to help mitigate that and prevent that from showing up in your auctions. Yeah, that's something we're really proud of. I'm glad you asked that question. Because again, as I said earlier, our clients need to bid with confidence with Zaki's. And it's a constant battle, just like in the art world. It's never a battle you win. You may win the battles, but the war will go on forever because as we get more sophisticated, so will the fraudsters. They'll find another way to do it. And I've been working very hard with the chateaus and wineries because they are our best first line of defense. The more that they can do to make it harder for the fraudsters, the more greater confidence everyone will have in the industry. And look, these people who want to make fraudulent wines, they're going to go the easiest route possible, right? And if wines get really hard to do, they'll go to some other product. They'll go to handbags or something else. I don't know what. So the more that we can do as an industry to police ourselves and to really make it work, the stronger we're going to be and the greater confidence people are going to have. So besides for working with the wineries on that, we have an internal team and some senior advisors who have been in the industry for as long as I've been, but that's been really their focus. I know this world, but there's people who know much better than I do. And, you know, we're constantly training our team. We're constantly taking digital photos and sharing it with the teams in the rest of the world. We've gone on trips to Burgundy and Bordeaux to look at old bottles that we know are real. Or, you know, there's some sellers we have no doubt that the product is real. We've known the consigner. They bought the wines 40 years ago. And so we know it's something that they got direct. Sometimes they have the receipts. I mean, how amazing is that when they have receipts from 40 years ago? Because some people just do that. That's how they operate. And yet that's how you learn. And like many things in the auction world, 
nothing happens overnight. Or in the wine world, it takes years to build up this knowledge to a point where you really know what you're doing. In um, Blink with Gladwell, with Malcolm Gladwell, you know, there's a scene where someone, now it's in the art world, there's some painting that everyone's talking about and some expert comes in and in a second he goes, that's fake, right? And then it took him a year to prove it, but he knew it was fake. You know, your nose twitches a little bit as you're so involved in this, as it's the passion of what you do, and it's the passion of our team. We have some people on our team who love to go out and have dinner with clients and do all that. We have others who love to touch all these bottles, and they think it's so cool, and they've been doing it for 10 years. They have great experience, or longer, right, along those lines, and they have great experience along those lines, and that's who we trust. What's the biggest catch in terms of picking up? I'm sure you've had fake bottles come into the auction scene before. Like, what's the biggest find you've had? We've all talked about Rudy Kernayawan. It's getting out of prison soon. Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. Very early on when we were in an auction house on our own, so in 2003, I think it was, we had heard about this elusive collector who's, you know, there are all kinds of rumors. He gets $100,000 a month in allowance. So who knows, right? There's all kinds of rumors going around. One day he just showed up at one of our auctions early on and bought a lot of wine. And we were super pumped to get to know him. We thought this is a great guy, but then he never paid. We didn't release the wine, but he didn't pay. He didn't pay, kept promising to pay. Finally, he said, I'm going to send you a bunch of wine. Once you sell that, you can ship me this other wine. And we said, great. This is this major collector. We're super excited about it. Rumor has it he had this unbelievable seller. We didn't know him very well at the time. And he shipped in what on paper looked like an amazing collection. And we're early on in our auction. You know, we were wondering if we we're going to be successful or not. And this was going to be one of the feathers in our cap in our second or third year. And we're looking at these wines and we're uncomfortable with this wine. We contacted Chateau about that one because it didn't seem right. This one kind of seemed right. Eventually, I was talking to my father about it. And we made a really hard decision and we had to just reject the whole consignment. Because sometimes you get a bad bottle or two when you think, well, the consigner just tripped up somewhere, which is usually what happened. Or maybe, you know, who knows how they got it, right? Fake wines leak in from everywhere. But this wasn't that. This was 60%, I don't know, 40% we were uncomfortable with. And we just rejected the whole consignment at that point. And that was really hard. And that was eye-opening for us. So, you know, we never shipped him the wines that he bought. This is like a year later at this point because we've been holding them for him. We didn't dare. We had paid out the consigner and everything. And so eventually we re-offered the wines. And because the market had gone up so much, we actually made money. <laughs> so that worked out okay in the long run. But that was eye-opening for us and made us much more cautious moving forward, not just with Rudy, but we're saying, well, if those wines are out here, here, they could be out in other places as well. I wonder who sold those other wines for him. Well, as we have every guest on our show, we ask a wrap-up question in terms of, what do you think is a lasting trend in a fizzling fad in the wine auction market space? It's a great question. And the lasting trend to me is that auctions are here to stay. Somebody said that the new retail, and I'm not going to go that far because <laughs> retail has an important place to play in the world. Auctions are certainly taking a portion of that away, just the reality of what we see. What do you think is a fizzling fad then? Something in the wine auction space that's happening now, but you don't think has staying power in the coming years? It could even be a type of wine that is maybe has a blip of popularity. It could be all the online stuff you guys are doing for COVID right now. Yeah, I would say I get surprised and I won't mention specific names, but there's certain burgundy houses we talked about early on who were kind of C producers and now are A producers or B producers. And now there's this big resurgence towards the old vintages. 
that I've never been impressed with. But there's people all of a sudden, because the new wines are great, they assume the old wines are great. Right. And I think people will wise up. I do think they'll realize that, yeah, the new wines are great, but the old ones, while might be good, they don't necessarily justify the prices we're sometimes seeing in them. They have to understand those generational changes of shifting from father to son or father to child. That's totally right, Robert. But I wasn't talking about generational changes. I hadn't thought about that specifically, but that's true as well. I've seen a number of Burgundy wine houses that have been sold. You know, the old owners were producing C-quality wines and the new owners, they paid a lot of money for the winery because that's the only way to do it. But they're raising the quality up. But generationally is true as well. I've seen that the younger generation is also just improving the quality. It's interesting. You bring up a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Well, it's funny because when I bought some of those domain, as in Humbrush ones from you at auction, I had reached out to Olivier Humbrush and asked a couple of questions. I have to ask my dad. I didn't make that one. I was like, of course you did because this is from like 1989. It's like, it's not my style necessarily, but it's still a good wine. He's just like, but when I took over the domain, I took it in a different direction. I was like, that is an important fact for collectors to understand, like who's making the wines. Yeah, very important. And, you know, as you get more involved and as you really dive into this world, you learn that more and more. And that can make a huge difference when winemakers change and everything, just like a chef in a restaurant can make a big difference. Well, thank you very much. It was very informative. I learned a lot about the history of Zaki's, but also your take on the space. I appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you both, Peter and Robert, very much. I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoy your podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.